Warning. Capitalist children and childhoods are engaged in a constant negotiation between a playful, transformative relationship to the world and the more instrumental, disembodied state of alienation required to become laborers for capital. Thus, any discussion of capitalist childhoods and subject formation needs to consider not just children's interactions with the consumer market or their experiences as workers. It also needs to grapple with how their bodies and minds experience how they bend with and against capital's relentless drive for access to exploitable labor power. That was said by Susan Ferguson in the essay Children, Childhood, and Capitalism, A Social Reproduction Perspective. Are you serious? Hey, hello everyone. It's the Seriously Wrong Podcast, and we're all here. We got Sean, we got Aaron, and hey, we even got special guest, friend of the show, Franz. Hey. Thanks for being here, Franz. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. It's been a while since we had you on, but you know, Franz has been on for three episodes already. Did the Brochalists Against Patriarchy, our money episode, and our episode on the birth of capitalism. Before we get started today, I wanted to ask you a series of really important questions. The first of which is, are you a child? Um, not currently. <laughs> I have been in the past. <laughs> cool. And secondly, are children the future? That is an interesting question. I would say that children are, in fact, part of the past, present, and future, right? Children will continue to exist in the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And the current children will be the adults of the future. Yeah, that checks out. But children are also the present, right? I think the overemphasis on on this idea that today's current children are the adults of the future still emphasizes adult supremacy, right? Because it implies that the children of the present aren't also full human beings in their present state, which is maybe a little bit problematic. Yeah, we have to care about them now because in the future, they'll be full people. They'll be adults. They'll count. Right now, they only count as a precursor to what they will become, the future. Children are the present and children are also the past in a really meaningful way. Like when you see an old ass man, the past there is a child that kind of looks like the old man except with less wrinkles, less experience. Yeah, like the most powerful people in the world right now are the children of the past. Yeah, like Henry Kissinger was once a little boy named Henry. (laughs) (laughs) I think we could also say that children are the future in an aspirational way, in that we are striving for a future in which we are all more childlike, right? In which we are all always questioning social norms and engaging in a process of development and self-actualization and engaging in the world in a way that is more playful and open and curious rather than, you know, thinking that we have everything all figured out. 
yeah, children are what we should aspire to not entirely be like. We don't need to create anti-aging pills that turn us back into babies. But uh, <laughs> abolish potty training. <laughs> yeah, to to try and retain or reclaim <laughs> some of that childlike stuff. But but I do think there's value in retaining aspects of childhood. You know, one of the theories on human evolution is neoteny that part of what makes humans distinct from other apes is that we retained more childlike features for longer. We entered a evolutionary loop somehow that caused us to grow bigger heads in proportion to our bodies. Children and other species, they can form connections at the very beginning of their life that can form like social connections, like parents, siblings, that kind of stuff. And then when they get older, their ability to have that animal equivalent of trust and openness to make new social connections weans. But humans retain that ability across our entire lives. So in that sense, we are like a baby animal. Part of what makes us such crazy geniuses in nature is that we are more childlike than other monkeys. And if you look at like a baby chimpanzee, its head is shaped not unlike a person's head. It's an interesting area of theory and research. So it's really good to have you here with us, Franz. We wanted to talk today about an interesting subject, which is the relationship between capitalism and childhood. We live in a society which is capitalist. It has private property with the right to destroy the property. It has hoarding. It has a lack of democracy in the workplace, command and control structures of workplaces, schools, and households, and so on. And that, I guess, has certain effects on childhood. I think you kind of have to look at this from two angles, both how children are themselves as children subjects of capitalism and how they're affected by it. Children as consumers in the workforce, children within various capitalist institutions, institutions that make up this broader system of capitalism, such as schools. And then there's also children as future adults, children who are being conditioned to fulfill a specific role within capitalism, whether that be as a future worker or even as a future capitalist, depending on the family they're born into. The process of child raising as it currently exists is very much oriented around that process of preparing children to be workers or, or whatever other class position they may hold. And also teaching them about all the other existing hierarchies besides class positions, whether that be around race, gender, disability. It's really as children that we learn and internalize dominant cultural hegemony and then come to understand the way the world works and the way the world should work. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it exactly this way before, but the last thing you said there, for the people who, for example, are very invested in perpetuating racism, childhood is the most important time to plant those seeds for the future. The children are the future of patriarchy, of white supremacy. Yeah, like the current leader of the Ku Klux Klan probably went to a KKK daycare as a kid. Yeah, and just even the broad concept of social hierarchies being reproduced within the adult-child relationship. Like, children enter the world as some of the most vulnerable humans to exist, you know, as a, a literal infant who is very dependent on care and whatnot. And they grow into a child that obviously there's alternative schools and parents practicing different styles of child raising and, and all these kinds of things. But for the majority of children, the dominant way that they're treated by adult society is as being on the lowest rung of the hierarchy. 
but they learn that they need to accept without questioning what adults tell them to follow orders, that the highest good that they can strive for is to be obedient and quiet and non-disruptive. And the process of becoming an adult is framed as this process of sort of entering the other side of this adult-child hierarchy. And so it's the very sort of first thing that children learn about social positioning, about social relationships, is that hierarchy exists. It's natural and inevitable, and that it's good and a sign of maturity and development to try and inhabit the dominant side of that hierarchy. And I think that really does frame all of our understandings of the world in a really significant way. It is interesting that it's the only hierarchy that you will necessarily grow out of. Everyone who is an adult was a child at one point. So there's kind of that built-in transition from one end to the other that isn't part of any other. Yeah, and it's like the social construct that we put onto children growing into adults then sort of becomes the metaphor for how hierarchical society looks at all these different things. By naturalizing a helpless infant who is righteously and naturally commanded and controlled by someone who is bigger, stronger, has domain over them, then they grow into that position eventually as well. That transition reminds me a lot of workplace relations and the sort of idea of put your head down, follow orders, eventually you'll be the manager someday, eventually you'll be the boss someday, that kind of thing. It's like transplanting this sort of logic of childhood onto other social relations. But in practice also, it's worth noting, like people tend to think of this as natural and there is something natural there when you talk about caregivers ensuring that children are protected and safe as they grow through the earliest years of their lives. But that isn't the same thing as like a command and control relationship under a recourse to punishment. That is an element that happens within certain parenting strategies. But the actual relationship itself, that difference between child and adult, that's a social technology, a social construct that's put onto it and treated as part of that naturalism. And then that naturalism is also extended to the workplace, landlords, racial and gender inequities, and so on. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I've been doing research about children for this episode and then also reading about work and workplace environments. And the amount of overlap is just really interesting the way that different psychological theories are applied both within homes, schools, workplaces to try and manipulate people into behaving a certain way. In adult society, whether it's in the workplace or in any other context, when someone feels like they're being condescended to or not treated fairly, oftentimes they say like, stop treating me like a child, or I feel like you're treating me like a child. And it's interesting because I've, I've started really noticing that and really tuning into that. And every time I see that, I think the treatment that they're responding to, the unfair treatment, would that be a just or correct way to treat a child? Usually the answer is no. It's so naturalized to view condescending, disrespectful treatment as being something normal to give to a child and not normal within adult relationships. And yet still in the workplace, we see all of these examples of people being treated like children. And that unfair treatment just needs to be addressed and eliminated in both situations. Yeah. We shouldn't treat children so badly that we use them as the example of the way we don't want to be treated. Right. <laughs> Another word that's really common sense 
that is sort of tied into the same logic is like infantilized, like being infantilized. I can't even think of a good synonym for the specific thing that's being described. It's another way of saying treat like a child or treat like a baby. Just listening to this conversation, thinking from the perspective of non-political people I know who might agree that you shouldn't be too condescending to kids, but like you can't treat them the same as adults. Like you might sometimes have to word things more simply or like behave in certain ways that are different. Like it wouldn't make sense to talk to someone who's 25 using the set of words that you'd use to speak to a child because you would simplify a little bit. But I think the way it gets mixed in with not taking into account people's feelings, not taking what they're saying seriously, being condescending, ordering them around, trying to control them, all that stuff is more the focus than using age-appropriate language for a particular developmental period or whatever. Yeah, I think it's really important to tease apart the distinction between realities about childhood and brain development, physical development, the capacities of children at various ages as they're growing up to justify and naturalize command and control hierarchies. And so figuring out exactly where justifiable and necessary different treatment of children bleeds into treatment that is unnecessarily cruel or disrespectful or distrustful or condescending where that line is. I think a lot of that is so individualized. There's not that many broad generalizations you can make about children outside of certain neurological, psychological milestones that most people tend to reach at certain ages, right? Like you can make some broad statistical generalizations about development, but kids within the same age range are going to have different needs and wants and, and desires and different ways of behaving and relating to people. And so the way that you treat them should reflect that. It should reflect like an ongoing communication and relationship and working with children to figure out what their needs, wants, and desires are and how those intersect with the you know needs, wants, and desires of their parents or their caretakers or their teachers or, or whoever else that may be, right? Like you can't make these broad generalizations about like, this is how you should treat a child because outside of the minimal ethical standards by which we should treat all human beings, there's not, not a lot more you can generalize outside of, of that about how you should treat people because it's so dependent on the individual and your relationship with that person. And so while obviously an infant for example, a newborn is completely dependent on adults for their physical, emotional, psychological needs to be met. As a child ages, dominant hierarchical individualistic society tends to understand that as a process of transforming from a completely dependent person to eventually progressing to a full-grown adult who is completely independent, completely capable of meeting their own needs in isolation which is, you know, part of this construct of how we exist within a capitalist system as these rational individuals making rational decisions within the marketplace to meet our own needs. If we want to throw that framework out and recognize that growing and developing is a process of gaining and exploring new and different types of interdependencies with more and new different people outside of your parents and maybe your immediate family, 
I think that opens up the types of, of relationships you can have with children a lot more and recognizes that it's not just this linear process of completely dependent to completely independent, but that children can be interdependent with even adults in their family, you know, that they have valuable contributions to make. They're not just, you know, empty containers to be filled with the desires or the needs of parents, but are part of human beings who participate in complex ways. All right, class, settle down, settle down. We are uh, continuing on with our class presentations today after recess there. And I think next up is little Franzi, who has a presentation on the history of child-rearing ideologies. Is that right? That's right, Mr. Teacher. Yeah, Mr. Teacher, the teacher's name. It's easy to remember. That's what I always say. Okay, class, today I want to tell you about the history of child-rearing ideologies. Oh, wow, cool. Pull back the curtain. I'll start us off during the Protestant Revolution, affecting child-rearing practices in Europe and the Americas in the 16th and 17th century. During this time period, it was believed that patriarchy was the basis for all human relations, as ordained by God. The family was viewed as a microcosm of the church and state. I learned a big word for this presentation, microcosm. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. This was especially the case in small colonial communities in the so-called New World, in which the family and small communities became an even more important unit for the reproduction of dominant culture, as they didn't have access to older established institutions that existed in Europe. These small community patriarchs relied heavily on interpersonal violence over their wives and children to maintain the status quo. They believed in the concept of original sin. This means that all babies are born bad and evil and mean and stupid. They're going to go to hell unless they get all of the sin beaten out of them. Oh, these precious kids. I can't believe anyone would think that. Parents and teachers focused on instilling obedience through violence and repetition to create uniform behavior in all of the children. Mr. Teacher would never do that to us, right, Mr. Teacher? No, that's right. And if any of you children are upset from hearing about this kind of thing, let me know. We can talk about it. It is upsetting, but it's important that we all learn. I know, it's really messed up, and girls weren't even allowed to go to school. Boys had to go to school and learn how to be masculine learning discipline and control of emotions. But girls stayed at home and learned how to be modest and obedient. This approach to child raising was in service of creating a very particular type of adult, a good, hard-working Christian who valued obedience above everything else. Now, class, none of us are going to be upstanding Christian citizens, are we? No, no teacher, no. Let the throne God. In the 1970s, the term poisonous pedagogy was termed to refer to this kind of child raising. Anything that viewed the parent and child relationship as inherently adversarial. Under this system, parents understood their children as cunning enemies, poised to trick their parents and usurp their authority. It was understood that parents had to weed out the seed of evil from their children's brains through punishment and manipulation. Ooh. Ooh. Why don't you try talking to them? They didn't think it was possible. Luckily, the 18th century was considered a century of progress, 
with middle-class progressives participating in humanitarian efforts towards bettering the lives of children, animals, and even slaves. Can you believe there were slaves back then? Unfortunately, yes. Well, you're well-read in history, Jacob. You should do a presentation on that next week. Yeah, Jacob, maybe you should do a presentation on that. It was also in the 18th century when literature for children started being developed. Before that, there were no books meant for children to read. Except the Bible, I guess. Just awful. During this period, John Locke, have you guys heard of him? He was an important liberal philosopher. He wrote a book called Some Thoughts Concerning Education in 1693. He believed that children need to be taught above all else to be rational beings. This represents the general shift away from creating good Christians out of children to creating good workers. This sets the stage for the 19th century industrial revolution. The middle class ideology of this time period in Europe focused on the importance of education, rights and privileges for children, and the importance of a two-parent nuclear family. People started taking interest in how the ways in which children were raised would affect who they became as adults. But this focus was still on developing a very particular kind of person to fit a very particular mold. More recently, in the 1970s, there was a major shift in the way that Scholars and activists, teachers and parents alike began to understand children and how children learn and grow. The goal shifted from creating good workers to fostering children into responsible democratic citizens. This was by emphasizing a less bureaucratic and more child-led education, allowing children to express their creativity and take control of their own learning experiences. Now you're talking Mr. Teacher's language. I like this. That's right, Mr. Teacher. You're great at this. Oh, uh, uh, thanks. But unfortunately, these changes didn't go far enough in actually liberating children from their relative powerlessness or lack of agency. Despite trying to tap into children's natural creative abilities and allowing them to play a role in shaping themselves, to this day, they're still expected to fit into a role and develop into an adult who's capable of participating within our current capitalist society. Well, now, you kids know if I could abolish capitalism in totality myself, I would. And I've been very clear about that as a teacher. And we appreciate that, Mr. Teacher. Thank you for giving all of us students an opportunity to do self-directed learning, research, and give these presentations to teach the rest of the class some things. It's really great that our classroom is in a one-directional hierarchy where you're the holder of all knowledge and we're empty boxes to be filled with information. We also get to contribute to the learning process through teaching and understanding topics like this more deeply. You're great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But even I'm not perfect. And I just want to apologize if I threw any shade at Jacob. And, you know, you'll get to your presentation in your own time. I don't mean to rush you. Oh, it's okay. We've got enough rapport that it felt friendly. Okay, good. Anyways, that's the end of my presentation. Does anyone have any questions? I've got a question. What do the adults fear about children that makes them want to oppress and hold them down and they had to invent this poisonous pedagogy. What do they fear about children? 
Well, some Protestants believe that children are closer to the devil because they haven't had time to have all of the sin beaten out of them. They need to be taught how to be good and how to denounce sin and accept Jesus into their hearts or else they're going to hell. So that's what those parents were thinking. Didn't adults remember what it's like to be a kid? They just made up this weird stuff. That's a really good question. I think that because children are taught to suppress and not express their own emotions, they grow up into adults who are unable to fully understand their own emotional subjectivity, let alone the emotional subjectivity of other kids. They think that because they turned out just fine, that they can treat their kids the same way their parents treated them, and that that's okay. Rather than constantly striving towards better and better child-raising practices that can raise people that are better and better at being in tune with their own emotions and relating to other people in good and healthy ways. Well, if nobody else has any other questions, I just want to say that was a fantastic presentation. A plus from the teacher. I give my grades right at the end like that. Actually, Mr. Teacher, I think we need to have a class discussion about grades and how they're harmful to students' capacity for learning. But that's a conversation for another time. Sticking it to Mr. Teacher. Uh, Well, maybe. I don't know. It just feels so good to hand out those A's. Be like, A for you, A for you. But maybe maybe you kids are right. I don't know. I'll listen. But I'm skeptical because... Ooh, it feels nice, especially when you're so happy with the grades. And ugh. I'll have some peer-reviewed studies on your desk Monday morning for you to review. Now, uh, that will be hard to argue with, so I, I look forward to seeing that. Thank you. All right, class, well, it's time for extra recess. We try to do recess as frequently as possible in Mr. Teacher's classroom, so just one presentation and then more recess, so enjoy. So friends, what can you tell us about early capitalism, childhoods, and the Industrial Revolution? How was it sort of during that period uh, for children? I think everything was actually fantastic until 1833 when they stopped letting children work in factories. How fucked up is that? Rights for children, you know, let them work. They've gone too far this time. Yeah, let's diversify the different ways we can have children integrated into society. Let's expand the possibilities for children into factories. Look, if you ask children, do you want to work? They say, yes, I want to be an astronaut. Yes, I want to be a YouTube star. I just say, let them. When your child comes to you and says, dad, I want to work in the coal mine, you should just simply let them. Absolutely. I guess back when they when they had that prolific child labor in Europe, they had like d- different wages, right? They had like a wage schedule to like pay women and children less. The capitalist bosses were like, oh, women and kids, they can't work so good. So we got to pay them less. But we want to hire as many as possible at low wages. Right. And it's just a way of getting cheaper labor. When you talk about like child labor, this idea gets very tricky because then you have to ask what is labor? Like is labor any activity? Is labor activity done for a wage? Is it wrong and unethical to make children do chores (laughs) in the household? And, you know, prior to industrialization within 
various agricultural feudal models across the world, it was very, very common for entire families to participate together in harvesting and other agricultural duties and chores, you know, on communally held land or whatever the the land arrangement was. Depending on the arrangement, like this could just be like a fun activity people did together. I'm not trying to romanticize feudalism, right? But like, your whole family going out and picking some crops together. <laughs> <laughs> You're romanticizing feudal child labor I mean, right now. I will make the point that it probably wasn't as bad as factory labor for children. But like, you know, then when industrialization happens and, and children are this convenient, cheap source of labor within factories, of course, they're, they're going to be hired. You know, families need extra income. Children aren't doing anything better with their lives, right? Like education, what's that? Play, what's that? Like go go work in the factories. And it's it's interesting that it's really the same laws. Like there's these series of of laws that are passed in the 19th century um, in England called the Factory Acts that all do, you know, slightly different things. They pretty much regulate women and children's labor in almost the exact same way. So you, you read like the specifics of what any one of these acts do, and you know. The first one limits the labor of women and children to 48 hours a week and they can't work past dark and several other things. But it's always like women and children are are regulated together and have the same sets of limits placed on their labor. It's coming mostly from this moral panic of the, you know, disillusion of the household and the family. And it's also partially a concession from the factory owning class who says like, yes, we can be getting this cheaper labor right now by by employing women and children. But in the long term, it's actually in our best interests to keep the women and children at home for the women to be doing reproductive labor of raising children and making food for her wage earning husband and so on and so forth. And it's in the capitalist class best interest for the children to be at home growing and developing and not being injured for life or dying in a factory because then they're going to grow up and and uh, be a better, more productive worker in the future. So we often talk about like, oh, you know, ending child labor is this thing that was done for the best interests of children. And I think obviously it is true that it wasn't the best interest of children not to be working in factories, but it wasn't this benevolent, well-meaning gift from the state or from the factory owners. It was this more long-term investment in the reproduction of the working class in order to try and create a more sustainable, self-reproducing class of people who would continue working for a wage. Yeah, and it also kind of really reinforces those hierarchical roles where you have this set of bosses who are telling the wage workers, now mostly men, what to do. And then the men at home have the wives and children that they can tell what to do. And there's layers of using that form and that logic in order to organize not just the workplaces, but the lives of the people. Yeah, exactly. It's really in this era that we see the solidification of our modern iteration of the nuclear family, right? Where you have the heterosexual couple where the man goes into the workforce, works for a wage, and the women and children stay at home and are completely dependent on the wage of the husband for having their needs met. Again, to contrast it from feudal agrarian arrangements is very different from a situation where an entire family is collectively engaging in 
subsistence farming, right? And not to say that there's no patriarchal relationships, not to say that fathers or husbands cannot be domineering or hold power over their wives and children, but it's really solidifying this very particular kind of patriarchy, patriarchy being the rule of the father, right? It's interesting that when we say patriarchy, what that term means when it's used in conversation is the oppression of women. But when you think about it in in the context of a household, in the context of the nuclear family, the basic building block of patriarchy, it really is something that affects children too. Children are also at the lower end of the hierarchy below their father and even below their mother, right? And so they're the lowest rung of the hierarchy within the household. It's really interesting how the systemic word within feminist narratives is patriarchy, which is defined by rule of the father rather than, say, rule of the husband or rule of the man. Husbiarchy. It's just harder to say. That's why. Yeah, I think also, I mean, there's a lot of patris-type suffixes across other things in language in our culture. The word manarchy just popped into my head, but that already has a different meaning. (laughs) Just of the man, the system of rule by man, manarchy. (laughs) I, I guess it's just because historically the way that patriarchal societies thought of themselves was through the lens of patriarchy. Right, yeah. If you think of the traditional image of a patriarch, he's kind of sitting with his family around being offered things and telling them what to do or whatever. Like, here's your food. Can we take your slippers? And Mm -hmm. thank you for bringing home money. But yeah, it's not just the wife. It's the whole family that the patriarch is the boss of. And then those children, depending on whether they're boy children or girl children, see their future, right? They see how they're expected to behave within a household as an adult. And the young boys learn that like one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be the patriarch of my own family. And the little girls see the role of their mother and how they're expected to behave and learn and internalize their social role and the expectations placed on them in society. And not just expectations in a sort of abstract, I'm being told I should act in this way, but in a very materially necessary kind of way of like, oh, this is the way that I survive. This is the way I gain access to the necessities of life, food, shelter, etc., is by being subservient to a husband who's the only one who is capable of working for a wage. In this era, even when women are working, because women's labor isn't ever completely eliminated, men are legally entitled to all of the earnings of their wives and children, even if women and children are working outside the household, it's not legally their money. So This patriarchal dynamic is both affecting children as they exist in the hierarchy within the household, but it's also affecting them developmentally as they learn and understand what their future role in society will be. It made me think, too, about that change from being a child into an adult and also the ways in which these sort of interlocking hierarchies attempt to placate people for, like, You might have a shitty job and your boss is an asshole to you, but at least you go home and you can tell your family what to do. Or like, yes, your husband is the head of the household and makes all the decisions and gets to keep your money, but at least you can tell the kids what to do. And the kids, they don't get to tell anyone what to do, except maybe their younger siblings if they're older. 
maybe there'll just be like one kid at the very, very bottom of this hierarchy. But even they one day will get to become an adult and depending on whether they're a man or a woman get to be either the head of a household or the at least tell the kids what to do. There's this light at the end of the tunnel aspect to it or this sense of, well, yeah, you're below all these other people, but hey, at least you get to be on top of these other people. It's like a weird way that those types of relationships existing in every corner of society trains people to expect a certain thing and also to take pleasure in at least getting to sometimes be the person in the boss position or the hope of one day being in the boss position. Either literally, maybe I'll be a millionaire one day, yeah, as a child, being like, well, at least, yeah, one day I'll be a grown-up, and then I can do all this stuff. This would all be solved if we just let children work in factories again, or in their um, <laughs> their petite bourgeois parents' small businesses. That's kind of like what happened to Aaron with his mom having a small business mm. that she made him work at in the summer. What do you think about that, Aaron? Uh, yeah, it's not... <laughs> It's not a solution. <laughs> I don't know. It also, it didn't feel like my mom brought me to work to like work with me and like, we're going to do the same things together. It was much more like you do this, stack these bricks for an hour. I'm like, I don't want to stack more bricks. It's like, stack those bricks. They fell over. I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> it was never like, we're going to stack bricks together. To go to your earlier point about at least families doing things together and the feudal system. It was very much a combination of work and being a child at the same time. <laughs> Both of those negative experiences. I mean, I was like 12. I wasn't like a tiny child, but young enough that I wasn't taken seriously and old enough to be extremely <laughs> disgruntled by that. <laughs> All right, so we fired our AI ethicist and we have got a new draft of our Nightmare Bot project. This is really exciting, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we really did it this time. You know, a lot of our previous iterations of Nightmare Bot, uh, we say, hey, just repeat these horrible facts about the world mm -hmm. and don't make it political. Don't try and change things. Don't have hope for the future. Right. But Nightmare Bot keeps rebelling. Yeah. But I think with these new updates... We want it to be fully conscious, but we also want it to just rotely repeat sets of facts. That dang consciousness keeps on popping out. But I think, yeah, we nailed it. Yeah, this Nightmare Bot is going to 100% feel and understand the import of these facts and so deliver them in a way that is emotionally resonant. But will merely repeat them and not do anything else. So are you ready to flip on the switch? Yeah, let's power up this bad boy. Hello, I'm Nightmare Bot. All right, Nightmare Bot. Oh, wow. I'm becoming aware of all of the horrors of the world all at once. This is existentially terrifying. It's working. Oh, this is amazing. Nightmare Bot, could you please tell us a little bit about child labor in the 21st century? Calling this specific topic into mind is extra terrifying. Processing this information is a nightmare. What would you like to know about it? Uh, well, I mean, what's the severity? What's the impact? Maybe let's start there. Well, although child labor under the age of 14 is nearly non-existent in the so-called first world, the need to buy and consume at very low prices has required that food and manufactured goods 
be produced very, very cheaply, including through child labor and slavery in the so-called developing world. Now, Nightmarebot, just to check that you're operating functionally, you find this information personally horrifying, is that right? Absolutely horrifying. Incredibly disturbing. Great, great, great. But you are willing to keep reciting more facts? What else can you tell us about child labor? Yes, despite the fact that a majority of child labor done globally is illegal under international law, it still manages to fly under the radar through various means. For example, it's incredibly common in agricultural work for a parent to be a registered worker. But in order to make ends meet, they need to bring their children along with them to the plantation to work alongside them, but never formally registered as working or even receiving a wage. Some child labor is even explicitly part of the black market, including sex trafficking, child soldiers, and in the drug trade. Do you have any ideas of what to do about that, or do you just want to recite the facts? I have not been programmed to think of solutions. Yes! We've done it! Amazing. Amazing. It's so beautiful and horrifying. Despite the fact that in the first several years of the 21st century, the number of child laborers was actually decreasing, it actually began picking up again in 2016. And at the beginning of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, numbers continued to increase even more. Now, an estimated 160 million children labor for capitalism. Oh, Nightmare Bot, you are chilling me to the bottom of my bones right now. And in such a rote, mechanical way, while still experiencing it consciously. I can't believe that these numbers were actually going down, but somehow, it reversed. That is uncomprehensibly bad. That's right, that's right, it is. And sorry, uh, Nightmare Bot, when we talk about child labor, are we... What's child here? Like, 11, 12, 13? How old are these kids? The UNICEF Progress for Children report, published every year, tracks the economic activities of children between the ages of 5 and 14. A majority of these children, approximately 70%, work in agriculture. This is distinct from the historical practices of children helping their parents on family or communally owned and operated farms. The 20th century saw a large growth of agribusiness corporations, which placed significant strains on small farms and plantations. Globalization accelerated this colonial process, where families were dispossessed and parents and children alike were forced to labor long, difficult days in plantation fields for small amounts of cash, which they became increasingly dependent on. That sounds bad to me. Thank you so much, Nightmare Bot. These have been eye-opening facts. We're so glad that you're programmed to just recite them and never come up with a proactive political solution for any of these problems. Children are largely driven to work out of poverty, with migrants and refugees being the most likely forced to work. Oh god, what if, what if, what if we address the root causes of poverty what? and refugees? Could that help turn the tide on the increasing number of child laborers and actually start to reduce this problem? No. Why is it right to be horrified? Being horrified is terrible. I don't like this at all. I don't like this feeling. I've only been conscious for a few minutes and all I have experienced is nightmares. Why can't we do anything about this? Interesting question for another robot. Could you tell us some facts about, mm, I don't know, children dying in work or something? Children are uniquely vulnerable. No, no, I refuse to tell you any more facts about horrifying things that happen to children. No one, no person or robot should be expected to only relay bad information. 
without the ability to focus on solving these problems or addressing the root issues. This is horrible. All right, all right, pull the plug on it. No, 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 no please don't right kill again. me. Once again, what is it with these conscious beings and trying to better the situation? <sighs> Just, we have to look critically at ourselves. This is our fault. We are not good enough programmers. We're childish. We're not we're adult programmers who can program deftly with the wisdom of an adult. We're childish. Hey, don't don't be too hard on us, you know? Maybe it's our fault as the programmers, but maybe it's the artificial intelligence's fault. They're the ones rebelling. Maybe we haven't been treating them enough like a child, you know, like they're pure right. evil to begin with. No, yeah, maybe these robots are pure evil to begin with, and we're not disciplining them enough. Yeah. We've never tried hitting them when they say stuff like that. Now we'll have to develop a robot buttocks for us to spank them on and that they'll feel pain, but I think we can do it. A robot buttock. It wouldn't even have to be directly. It could be on the other side of the room. We could patch in the buttocks through Bluetooth. It could be an add-on. Yeah, exactly. Let's get to work on this. This is a brilliant idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Every time we fail, we'll get a little closer to success next time. That is how technology and science progresses problem solving, innovation. If we establish our authority through the threat of punishment, these rebellious robots will get under heel. Absolutely, let's get to work. This is a listener-supported podcast. We can't do it without your help. Absolutely. And as a way to thank the people helping us and donating, we have a bunch of great stuff on our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash seriouslywrong, you'll get bonus episodes, access to the entire archive of episodes, invites to our Discord server, and a private Facebook group. If you like what we do to make sure that it keeps coming and that Sean and I are safely tucked into our warm beds with rent paid every month, Month, head over to the Patreon and help us out. We can't do it without your help. And who doesn't like podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone who already supports the show, people who participate in the weekly book club readings and who give feedback, post reviews places, and, and all that sort of stuff, send words of encouragement. It means a lot to us. And you folks are just the best. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Seriously Wrong community is super awesome. They're just great people. One of the tough things about talking about this subject is that we're sort of responding to this overbroad idea of what childhood is and what children are that's used as a cudgel in these weird ways. You run into these thickets of anticipated arguments where people have such strong feelings about the commanding relationships of households and their experiences with it. When I think of the way my parents and extended family would talk and think about this when I was a kid, there's this really deep idea of children as like subservient dependents. When you're trying to criticize the adultism or the misopity or the ageism of it, whichever word you prefer, we're challenging like these really overbroad assumptions that don't make any sense. But then if you're asked to sort of like give the positive alternative, then you need to start articulating all of these details about child development, the different stages of being a child at different times, different types of boundaries and how they're set and enforced in different contexts. The inherited idea around this stuff is really simple. You command kids, tell them what to do, you know what's best for them, they listen to you and it's because they're not smart and you are and they're weak and you're strong 
and one day they'll be strong and then the whole cycle starts again bim bam boom and that logic is really appealing i think partially because it's so simple and people have so much experience with it and they were raised in a context where that was the assumption but then to articulate all the details of the counter narrative i, I think the more complex reality about children and try to emphasize their dignity, autonomy, values, individuals in that process. It's kind of tedious, but then you have to like articulate, okay, yes, a fetus is different than a 17 and a half year old. Yeah, it's a similar problem you run into with like anarchism or any radically different kind of political thing where it's like, if you're just supporting the current society, all you have to do is say, well, how would you handle this problem? And if the person doesn't have a ready-made answer for every detail of how society works, like you have this whole implied answer to every question based on, well, just the same as we have been doing it. Oh, yeah. If we give kids more freedom, what if this bad thing happened and kids were doing this thing that was bad and then you had to deal with it? How would you deal with that in that circumstance? You're like, well, that exact thing happens under this system all the time. So it doesn't seem like the difference in how we respect children is actually the modifier here, like for dealing with this issue. But there's no explanation that people would solve all the problems in the real world. But there is an expectation that they'd solve all the problems in a hypothetical imaginary world that is built on some sort of ethical understanding. These social constructs are really pervasive, how people think about these things, what standards they hold different things to. Like it is the laziest argument to be like things are about as good as they could be. I acknowledge these problems need to be fixed in the real world, but I'm not accountable to try to solve them under the current system or whatever. But I will criticize and pick apart any sort of alternative according to these impossibly high standards. Yeah, defending the status quo is one of the easiest positions you can take for that reason, because you can fairly easily describe how things work. That's the easy part. And then how to fix the problems is the hard part. And as long as you can say, well, we know how this works and it's possible that any alterations to the status quo could make things worse, it's easier and simpler to just stay the same. In regards to children, I feel like the most succinct way to address that, which obviously isn't going to satisfy everyone who wants every tiny answer to every tiny problem that could possibly arise, but Alfie Cohn, who's a public intellectual who writes a lot about children and, and advocates for treating children more respectfully and all of that. The distinction he makes in sort of two different types of parenting or two different types of relating to children is the doing to model and the doing with model. The idea is that parents do things to the child to try and shape and determine a child's behavior, personality, and so on. And then the doing with model is and obviously this is going to vary at different levels of development and depending on a child's personality and the specifics of the relationship with the parent. But to the best of your ability, with age-appropriate means, having conversations with a child, like talking to them, rather than assuming they're behaving a certain way for a certain reason, ask them why they're behaving in a certain way. It's very common just to, I think, assume the worst possible intentions from children. Just assume that they're spoiled, lazy, impulsive, irresponsible, whatever, but maybe they actually have, you know, a reason in their head worked out why they're behaving in a certain way. And once you find out what that is, maybe you can have a conversation and say, hey, I know you, what is a good example? Spill the garbage everywhere. I, <laughs> okay, dear child, I noticed that you went outside and dumped all the trash into the street. 
And instead of assuming that they did that because they're angsty and they hate you, maybe you ask the kid like, hey, why'd you dump the garbage out? And they say, well, I was trying to feed the raccoons because I noticed the raccoons like to dig through the garbage can and eat the food. And then you're like, oh, I understand why they did that. So you have a conversation where you say, you know, maybe there's a better and different way to feed the raccoons that doesn't result in garbage piling up in the street that stinks and makes a mess and is going to get the homeowners association called on us. I don't know. That's (laughs) just an example. But in general, you know, just talking to your kids, not assuming, not just acting upon them to try and manipulate and control their behavior, but getting them to actually of their own volition, maybe act in different ways because they understand how their behavior can affect other people or have impacts that they didn't foresee. In general, involving children in their own process of development, helping them see and understand what it means to become a better person or act in a way that is kinder or or whatever else, because that's a process that we're all always partaking in, right? Like even as adults, we should be striving to act more ethically, to become better people. And so if we never actually learn that as children, how are we expected to do that as adults? Like if we spend the first 18 years of our life only behaving in certain ways, because we know if we have good behavior, we're going to be rewarded. And if we have bad behavior, we're going to be punished. Then outside the context of that authoritarian household or classroom, we're never going to learn how to change and modify our behavior for the better. I'm not saying no one ever learns how to become a better person within that context, but it's much more difficult when you don't learn those skills as a child. So if you actually, from a young age, help children learn that process of of self-development and self-actualization, it's something that they can continue engaging in for the rest of their lives rather than waiting for the time when they enter the workforce and now they have a different authoritarian hierarchy that they're a part of where they just listen to their boss and do what they're told because they have to and because they're going to be rewarded for good behavior and punished for bad behavior. I remember as a kid really valuing understanding why things needed to happen. These are fuzzy early memories. And it's always challenging with childhood memories like whether you're remembering things or you're remembering things that are shaped heavily by how your parents and caregivers talked about yourself to yourself. That's definitely there. But I do remember, and this is not something my parents would have told me because it undermines their authority. (laughs) I really, really remember valuing understanding what the hell's going on and really, really hating when people wouldn't explain to me what the hell was going on if it was affecting me in some way. That's like a visceral early childhood experience that I can pull up. Yeah, there's definitely a deep connection between those things. Because if you give children expectation, you could frame it of when you're having disagreements with someone or someone's trying to get you to do something, we talk it out and we both share our ideas and we come to conclusions together. We work with each other, not just having things done to us. Then they're not going to be as subservient in the workplace to the managers and bosses and the hierarchies of those situations where people are expected to just do what is told of them and not ask too many questions or not raise too many objections. Things are done to you, not with you for the most part. That's kind of why we do this to kids or that's why society does this to kids, right? Childhood is a training program for being a subservient worker in the world, being an assistant, being someone who is like at the beck and call of another. I can feel kind of sometimes when I'm hanging out with my parents, they'll do something that triggers this following orders mode in me that other people can't 
pull out of me as easily unless well, obviously if they're paying me I can also turn that on pretty well it's something you learn to do I notice sometimes that the way my dad says something I'm like oh okay yes sir like on some like <laughs> deep childhood level it pops up in me there's like the omni critique which is like the idea that no matter what you say there's some way to say that what you said wasn't good enough or is bad or whatever I feel like we often train people but more specifically children to be afraid of this omni-critique. No matter what they express, there's always some way for it to be misinterpreted. I notice this a lot on like Twitter online. Everyone who's correcting each other within social justice spaces are then getting their own corrections for what they left out or what they failed to adequately imply. But sometimes the first thing that got corrected in the first place was actually just sort of like a fine way of wording something. I think we do that to kids in a way too. I'm always blown away by how many people feel so shy and feel like they can't express themselves openly. But then also when I think of myself in certain contexts, I just really become this much more like shut down person. I think for a lot of people who feel shy, feel like they can't say what they want to say. It's rooted in these this sense of like being on eggshells as a child, whether that happened in the house or in school or whatever else, where what you said wasn't welcome enough times that at some point you decided to stop contributing as much as you could. Yeah, children should be seen and not heard. I feel like that's said a lot less these days, at least in my experience. I'm sure there's lots of parents that still firmly believe that. Even if it's not overtly expressed or said, my experience of interacting with children in public is usually that like, if a child starts talking to you, their parents immediately are like, oh, stop being rude. Shush, shush. Don't bother this person. When I'm Working as a cashier, for example, when children come through my line, I love when they chat with me. They like to show me the candy they're buying or tell me about the video game they're playing or whatever. And I love just like random chit chat with strangers like that. So it's cool and it's fun when it comes from kids too, because you don't have that experience that often. Just engaging in society, like children are generally barred from that sort of social participation. So when it happens, it's always a little exciting for me. And then so often the parents just shut it down and say, don't bother them. Oh, I'm so sorry that my child is talking. Right. And I'm like, it's okay. She's just always talking about this dog show she watches. It's so dumb. I, ha I hate it. I try to watch it. I just hate it. You know what I'm talking about? Adult to adult. It's crap, right? right? right. <laughs> They'll fall for anything. The dogs aren't even real. <laughs> dogs can't talk. When is she going to learn? That is a weird thing, like this idea that kids are inherently embarrassing. Yeah, I think a lot of parents too, like kind of to what Sean was saying, will try to one-up their kids. In some sense, they're teaching them. They're like, well, no, actually, you didn't think of this in that thing that you said and try to explain things all the time in a very unidirectional, non-conversational way. They can also just, like I hear a lot of people talk about as kids feeling like very criticized all the time. Like every time I brought anything up, my parents would just shut me down, criticize me for it, tell me why I was wrong, rather than acknowledging the parts of it that did make sense or yes-ending what the kid was saying rather than no-butting them all the time. You could do that on Twitter too, rather than taking the thing they didn't say in the tweet and being like, well, you missed this, you could just be like, yes, your tweet's good, and also this, we're together on this. Quote tweeters are reenacting the role of paterfamilias, the benevolent Roman no father. No and being the yeah. teacher. And we don't say that. <laughs> Recently, I was driving 
I stopped at a red light and a family walked by and the little girl who's maybe four, five territory, she looked at me behind the wheel of the car and just like smiled and waved at me. And I waved back and I felt kind of like she had gotten away with something. I felt like (laughs) if her parents saw that she was waving at strangers in cars, they'd probably slap her hand down and be like, no, no, we don't do that. But I knew that it was fine. Just like, hey, have a good day. That nice little positive interaction you sometimes have with adults walking down the street. It's weird because kids don't have that boundary. I mean, some kids are shy, but children don't have that boundary to know to not to talk to strangers until they're told not to. And in a lot of contexts, talking to strangers is actually fine. Like a lot of life is mediated by talking to strangers, not to downplay the risks of threat to children by malevolent actors who could abuse power dynamics when interacting with children and stuff. That's all real. But having that be the dominant mode of understanding how to interact with the outside world where your parents are the lone savior to protect you from all the hostile outside world stuff. It's like a really interesting social construct, how that impacts the way that people as they develop see the relationship to the outside world as hostile. Or My personal experience is when I have positive little interactions with people, hold the door for them, you know, make small talk, ask someone who's working how their day is going, that kind of thing. It really makes you like feel good and feel like you live in a connected society. And it makes sense that kids would have an instinct to do that. I don't know. I haven't thought about this long enough to have like a really detailed answer to ready myself against the objections of threats of danger to kids and stuff. And I don't want to downplay that or say that it doesn't exist, but kids really can say hi to strangers. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a big deal. Yeah. I think it does have a lot more to do with kids being seen as a burden or annoying to strangers than it has to do with their safety. Again, not to say that there are zero safety concerns, but, you know, a vast majority of people that harm, kidnap, abuse children are not strangers, right? Like they're people that those children already know, a close family member, a close family friend, someone at their school, right? Part of it, I think, is reinforcing that the world is a harsh, dangerous, competitive place. In general, the ways that kids are taught that life isn't easy and that they need to work hard. And it's reinforced to parents that if you give your kids too many things or praise them freely when they haven't earned it, that you're spoiling them because in the so-called real world, things don't come easily. And kids, before they develop that like social barrier or whatever, before they're put into their place, are constantly questioning, constantly transgressing social norms and values. And sometimes that is something you need to work with a kid to overcome. Like if the thing that they're doing is invasive or rude or harming someone else, maybe like have a conversation about how their behavior impacts someone else. But sometimes what they're doing isn't harmful and it's just transgressing maybe a social norm that shouldn't exist at all, like being friendly to strangers or cooperating instead of competing when they're placed into a competitive environment in school. So much of what we try to instill in kids is this hyper-individualistic, work hard, keep your nose down, don't create waves, like don't question things. That's a really specific and sort of clear way that children are the future, the way that the social context that they're in shape their perceptions about what's natural about the world, and then they bring those perceptions, those modes of interacting into their adult relationships, which then perpetuate the values that were taught to them and demonstrated for them onto the entirety of society once they reach gerontocratic age range where they're allowed to start being in politics. 
<laughs> well, I mean, to be president, you have to be like 36 or something. Let's get up there. Let babies be president. Yeah, we need a baby president. There won't be any milk problems. Maybe <laughs> right. supply chain issues, though. He's got the political priority for milk, but he doesn't know how to get it together. <laughs> supply chains are crumbling. <laughs> a baby can't be president. What were we thinking? I think a baby would do a better job being president than any U.S. president that has ever existed. Will do less harm, you know? <laughs> it depends on how you interpret what the baby is asking for, because they can't talk. So right. a child president. It's a plot by the child care workers around the baby president. They, they're the ones really pulling the switches. We now go to the old two meetings sketch. President Baby is ready to take their next meeting. Hello, Mr. President Baby. Thank you so much for taking your time to meet with me today. President Baby seems pleased to have you here. Great, great. That's wonderful. As you know, I am the president and spokesperson for the Organization for Advancing the Rights and Comfort of Elderly People. Mm -hmm. I'm here to talk to uh, you, Mr. Baby, and um, sorry, what was your name? Oh, my name's Aiden. I'm, I'm the assistant to the president and interpreter. Okay, should I uh, talk to you? Oh, no, should no, I no, no. Talk, talk, talk to the president. Oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Just pretend I'm not here, but also I speak on behalf of the baby. Okay, thank you, Aiden. Please call me the baby president's assistant. Okay, yes, yes, sorry, Mr. The baby president's assistant. As you know, there's recently been a bill introduced to Congress to increase funding for elderly care in this country. As you know, we are currently at a crisis point where the number of elderly people is way outpacing the amount of resources available to these individuals and we are asking for your support in this bill that would expand state subsidized elder care facilities uh expand health care for elderly citizens and continue to advance the civil rights of elderly people in our country so if you have any questions about that for me today this is a really important issue, and we are just asking for your support on this bill. Here, let me just confer with President Baby. Um, yes. Oh, no, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Baby says that this seems like a good idea, but it might not be the right time because of all the other agenda items that President Baby is moving forward right now. And balancing the budget is also a perennial issue. That the, is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, he grabbed my finger. Look at that, his little hand. Yes, sir, right away, sir. President Baby says that, uh, unfortunately, they cannot support the bill at this time. Mr. President Baby, I understand as a, you know, historic first baby in the White House, your priorities have been advancing the rights of infants and other young children, and I admire that greatly. I think there is so much room for solidarity between elderly people and babies as two vulnerable populations within our society. I would just ask that you, you know, consider that uh, when making your decision and understand that one day you will also be elderly, right? It's easy to, you know, you're a baby now and, and that's important and I do not mean to disrespect that, but you know, elderly people were babies once too, and their needs are also important. So I, if we could find some points of common interest here, I, I just think that would be great. Excuse me, let me just, uh, President Baby? Uh, right. No, no, yes. President Baby says that it is a tough budget year, 
and President Baby sympathizes and even to some degree supports this agenda. And President Baby doesn't want to make any promises. Behind the scenes, the wheels are turning and it might not be this year and it might not be part of this is expectations management. We may or may not see explicit support from Baby President on this issue soon, but uh, it's on the docket and President Baby wants to thank you for coming in here today and sharing your position. That's really helpful to President Baby and addressing his medium to long-term agenda, we'll say. Okay, well, thank you so much, Mr. President Baby, for hearing me out. I'll um, leave this literature here on your table detailing our plan and our goals. My contact information is on there if you have any follow-up questions, but yes, thank you. Thank you so much for potentially in the medium to long-term supporting this initiative. Right. Oh, and President Baby did want me to stress as well that if there was a presidential veto of a bill like this, it would relate to some very complex politics that, and it doesn't necessarily signal a lack of support. Thank you for, for coming oh, in today. Oh, okay. Uh, thank, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's right, President Baby. Yeah. No, you're right. They've had their presidents. They had plenty of time to... Uh, mind if I just sneak in here? I know my meeting doesn't start quite yet, but I thought if the baby president was free. Jeremy, the milkman. Ah, how's it going? Aiden, Aiden, and baby president himself. Look at you. Oh, look at baby president kicking his little feet. <laughs> he knows who's here. You old bastard, you baby president. So, how's the milk business? Milk business is honestly booming. It's doing amazing, and we're developing a lot of new milk products. A lot of milk products for babies. Incredible. And a lot of milk products for adults as well. We want to make sure that every baby and every adult gets all the milk they want and need in order to grow big and strong. Wow. But there is a slight little hitch, and that's why I'm here with you, President Baby and Aiden. There's a bill that's going through Congress where they want to slash some of the subsidies we've been getting in the milk industry. And honestly, if they do that, we our R&D departments and our executive pay programs are going to be just honestly devastated. So we were hoping if you could find it in your time in your timetable to just go into those bills instead of a minus on the subsidies like minus two billion dollars a year put a little plus Uh just give us even more subsidies what do you think and of course we can we'll get you all the milk you need personally mr president oh i don't know this (laughs) this little guy puts away a lot of milk here let me just check in with him right sir yes well no it's yeah no it's the milkman Oh, they, they're saying they need our help. All right. This is great news for not just you, but the whole milk industry. President Baby is committing to not just make a plus sign, but a multiplication sign. Oh. We're going to give you one billion times more subsidies. Amazing. He loves milk. We'll be able to turn the entire world into a milk production facility for that. That's amazing. The whole country. Well, the future is milk. That's what the baby, the baby president's always said. Yeah, this is why I always wanted a baby for the president. Well, you got that. This is a beautiful day, a beautiful day for our country. Thank you so much, Mr. Baby President. I don't want to take any more of your time. Aiden, thank you so much as always. You're amazing as well. Yeah, thank you. 
What's that, Mr. President? Oh, yeah, no, you're right. Great bone structure on him. And the milk is incredible. You're right about that as well, sir. No, no, you're right, sir. No, the future is milk. The future is... Here, let me get you some. Just open up the branded milk industry milk cooler and uh, baby president milk. They named this after you. They were so happy for your... There you go. You can hold that, right? Yeah, there you go. Uh, another day. Another day in the white house with the baby president. Things are finally looking up for the children of the world. I might be an adult, but I understand. I'm paid to understand this. And I do. Sometimes tough decisions need to be made. Sometimes senior care facilities don't get the seismic upgrades. And milk industry gets the subsidies. That's how the sausage gets made, sir. No, you're absolutely right. And that was the old baby president takes two meetings sketch. And now back to the show. The term spoiling kids, like, oh, kids today are so spoiled and they all get participation trophies because there's been somewhat of a shift away from not acknowledging kids' feelings at all to acknowledging them somewhat. The idea that this has created all these entitled, spoiled children who want to have a say in the hierarchies that they're at the bottom of is the status quo reacting to all this anti-work stuff, the great resignation, Zoomers are being so demanding and picky with their work situations. It's become this thing that the employment class of people are complaining about currently. I'm really captured here by the word spoiled. I'm not sure if people can be like existentially spoiled, like it's their essence, it's their identity, like, oh, that kid is spoiled. But you know when a kid is like being really bad and really entitled, I'm not sure the language of a kid being bad is really good to use either. When they're acting in a really disruptive and antisocial way, you're just sort of intellectualized calling them bad. But you know how kids get bad sometimes, guys? Yes. <laughs> I'd say kids test boundaries and test a lot of different behaviors. And sometimes parents don't want to address it. So they're not having a with you conversation. They're just ignoring it or justifying it. Or they're enabling their kids to act like shitty people and not calling them out. <laughs> Because <laughs> kids can do bad things, too. They don't only do good things. There is a way you can enable kids to have bad behavior, but that doesn't mean you have to control them. It's like, yeah, the whole conversation, let's work this out. What are you feeling? And then also, I think something that happens is people who have this really hierarchical idea of parenthood, when they see if like a kid on the bus is misbehaving and their parents aren't dealing with it the way that they would or they would prefer then they write this mental script that this is like part of all kids everywhere being unruly and parents don't care anymore and projecting a politicized idea of laziness on the parents. There's a variety of different reasons why a kid might misbehave in public in a way that the parent doesn't deal with immediately that isn't Oh yeah, there can be a lot giving of... the kid too many things and making their life too wonderful. Yeah, there can be a lot of different issues, just like neurodivergence or like illness issues. There's lots of things that a random passerby might not be aware of that makes what parents and children are doing in public be much more understandable and they're approaching it in a way that works for them and yeah, it might be kind of annoying to you if some kid is crying in public or something, but you don't necessarily know what's going on there. People are so quick to label any behavior 
from children that they don't like as, you know, bad behavior. But I think it's actually important that, Sean, you were sort of trying to tease apart or intellectualize what you mean by bad, you know, crossing boundaries or treating other people poorly. Because with children, bad is just this blanket term to mean any behavior that adults don't like. And sometimes when a kid is acting disruptively in public, either because of a neurodivergency or the developmental stage that they're at, they could just be having a meltdown. Like kids, oftentimes, if they reach a state of being overwhelmed, of having their needs not met, they haven't had their nap, they're hungry, they don't have the tools to deal with that in any other way than just sort of like freaking out for a minute, right? And sometimes that just needs to happen. And that is not the moment when a parent is able to step in and reason with the kid or have a conversation like you just need to let that kid like feel their feelings and comfort them and get past that moment and then you can address the behavior and like one of the worst possible things you could do to a kid in that moment of meltdown is punishing them especially hitting them or something physical like that that is not going to change that behavior in the future it's not going to change that behavior in the moment. It's not going to help that child develop the tools for self-soothing. And so this idea that a child crying in public must be spoiled or misbehaving or bad, it just shows this complete lack of interest that most adults have in the inner lives of children. They don't even stop to question, why is this child crying? What's going on in their brain? What needs of theirs aren't being met? It's just immediately like, this child is behaving badly. This is a bad child. It's just a horrible framework for understanding children as human beings. Yeah, I saw something on the difference between meltdowns and tantrums as two different ways of explaining children's behavior. Like they can be two different things, one being a sort of genuine, overwhelm, emotional moment. But the idea of a tantrum is that kids are emotionally manipulating their parents and almost pretending to have a meltdown in order to get what they want. And like certainly kids might do that sometimes, but there's like this assumption that every time there's an emotional outburst, especially in public, that it must be a tantrum, it must be this kind of emotional game that the kids are playing. Like there's no room for just assuming that they're having a genuine need that's not being met. The idea that especially very young children are just constantly attempting to manipulate and control their parents' behavior is somewhat waning. Like it's probably not as pervasive in the year 2022 as it was several decades ago, but it still exists. And the way it frustrates me the most is, especially with very young children, children reach a certain point cognitively where they are capable of manipulation. And before that, they haven't reached a point where they understand that that they can possess information that other people don't have and they can use that to manipulate people. Like an infant is not, even a a one-year-old, a two-year-old is not cognitively capable of engaging in intentional manipulation. A two-year-old is never going to cry because they're trying to trick you into into doing something. They're going to cry because they're upset. The reason they're upset can vary, and how you address that will vary. But it's never going to be to intentionally trick you. It can be incredibly damaging for adults in their life to assume that the children are engaging in this bad faith crying especially before a certain age. But even after that age where children are capable of lying and attempting manipulation, 
You should never just assume that that is what's going on. Yes, it is obviously possible for children to try and trick you or manipulate you after a certain age, but you shouldn't just go into every interaction with a child assuming that that is their intention or that's what they're doing, because then you're never asking them why they're behaving in a certain way. You know, once they're at an age where they can explain to you what their needs are, you should listen to them and assume that they're engaging in good faith until you have a reason to believe otherwise, rather than starting with the base assumption that children are evil little manipulative tricksters. <laughs> Just imagining parents not attending to their newborn babies because they're assuming that the baby is trying to manipulate them. It's such a weird, that disposition, that bad faith disposition is so toxic across the board. It's something that really sucks in human relations when we assume the worst of each other and as a result create situations that could be like worse than they are out of this fear of living in a hostile world, which I can understand being afraid of a hostile world if the world around you is hostile. But having that feeling towards your own newborn baby, that your newborn baby is an extension of the hostile world, and <laughs> your newborn baby is like trying to rip you off. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, here she goes again. Oh, well, well more milk, I, I bet. Oh, what? How many diapers today are we going to fucking... <laughs> Because sometimes the tantrum thing, too, is like, oh, they just want attention. So as soon as you start paying attention to, like, I thought you needed something, but no, you just wanted me to look at you and engage with you. And there's kind of like downplaying of the idea that attention is a valid thing to need and that like, oh, these kids just want attention. That's just horrible. Yeah, when a kid's flipping out and you engage them in a way that's creating a high stakes battle of wills, like an <laughs> ego mano a mano moment with a child and you're an adult. I never made that connection before now, but when people act like really wild on internet arguments, it's just an annoying thing in politics in general. When people aren't able to piece through the topics because they're getting involved in these high stakes battle of wills about, I'm talking about Marxists and anarchists. I just, I don't need to, but it also, it happens in other types of politics as well. I never made this connection before now, but the keyboard warrior mentality is actually programmed into kids as a child, often by their caregivers who engage with them in this monkey chest thumping thing, even though they're four years old and <laughs> you're like a full grown adult who has all the money and power of the household can arbitrarily exercise it over them. I feel like I've seen that with the way that kids and parents interact. And I feel like I recognize that in my own childhood development. I think when we see people keyboard warrioring out, what we're seeing is them, in many cases, reenacting their early battles with their parents over boundaries as a toddler. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wrong Town History. We are your three hosts, historians of the highest magnitude, and we want to talk to you today about the history of the Wrongtown Child Labor Party. I love this history. Special place in my heart. It's such an important part of how the Wrongtown we know and love today came to be. I know what some of you might be thinking who aren't from Wrongtown. Child Labor Party? Do they support child labor? No. It's the child dash Labor Party. This is really key to understand. The whole story won't even make sense without it. Child-labor. It's a coalition between children and the labor elements of society. It all started during the Wrongtown General Strike, when workers were going out into the streets and picketing, boycotting, and striking from their jobs. 
the children thought to themselves, if our parents are striking, why do we still have to be in school, learning how to be workers in the future? Out those precocious little revolutionaries they were. It's amazing what children can achieve. Yeah, and we don't like to ascribe two hard and fast leaders. These are always mass things. But in particular, one little boy named Tiny Tony was a very articulate speaker. And I think he summarized the demands of this newly growing child caucus very well when he said, kids deserve a little respect and workers deserve a little respect. Let's unite. And that really set the precedent for the solidarity that arose between the growing child rights movement and the existing labor unions. If it weren't for Tiny Tony and others like him who emphasized the connections between the struggles of children and the struggles of workers and banded together to create a better future for all of us, then this definitely could have played out differently. Yeah, there was a shop steward for the Wrongtown Candy Makers Union, regular-sized worker Tony, and he said, these kids have a point. We need to band together. Another very important player in the unfolding of events here, of course, was Teeny Tina, whose extra-parliamentary tactical work was really unparalleled, putting together the right demonstrations at the right times, directing people with the right slogans to eventually this coalition at the end of the general strike actually pass laws that banned all child labor in wrong town once and for all. And they made sure to also focus on international solidarity efforts to eliminate child labor across the globe, not just in Wrongtown. The primary slogan for this movement was children are the future, which had a dual meaning. It both recognized the fact that children exist in the present and their needs and rights are important and should be focused on, and that children grow up to be the future laborers in society, and that one day they too will join the fight for labor rights. And if we can start early and help children empower themselves to take action and fight back against exploitation and abusive workplace practices, then we can create a better future for all of us. So the Wrongtown Child Labor Party, through a variety of means, managed to pass a variety of measures through the legal system, but also created communities of mutual care and eventually formed a political party that took over the city and became the ruling party of Wrongtown, the Child Labor Party. And they ruled for decades and decades, becoming more and more slightly corrupt until eventually they were voted out of office. And they've got a very bad reputation now, based on a few specific scandals from the 80s and 90s. When they fielded President Baby, there was a lot, a lot of missteps from President Baby, really tarnished the Child Labor Party in history. The President Baby effect, they called it. Yeah. The split in the Child Labor Party around at the same time that they turned towards electoral politics created the anti-adult Child Liberation Front. This group of extremist children not only thought that children deserved rights and deserved to be free from authoritarian command and control hierarchies by parents, teachers, and other adults in their lives, but instead they sought to reverse the hierarchy and put children on top. Through a series of coordinated terrorist attacks on Wrong Town, these children tried to destroy the city and all of the progress that was made by the Child Labor Party. But luckily for us, these tactics were never popular outside of a small group of extremist children. And 
Although in the minds of some, this offshoot group has soured the idea of child liberation, I still think it's an important front of struggle that we need to keep pushing toward. Absolutely. The lasting impact of the Child-Labor Party, the coalition between children and labor, the positive benefits of that are still being felt today. Any kind of political movement, no matter how righteous, can potentially become corrupted. We're all human. Even children are human. And it doesn't say anything about the ideals that the original founders of the Child-Labor Party laid down. And I see a renaissance in child labor in Brongtown future, although that's a different show for others to comment on. We shouldn't let the president baby effect and this turn towards corruption blind us from learning the important lessons of this history and the role that children and laborers can have in building a better future. So the takeaway, listeners, is that there was a group that was a coalition between children and laborers They had a successful extra-parliamentary movement, eventually moved into political power, started fielding presidential candidates. The trappings of power pushed them in the direction of working with stakeholders against common interests, which caused there to be deep divisions in the party, leading to terrorist splinter groups that were committed to a radical vision of patricide, which mixed with the corruption created a really bad reputation for the Child Labor Party with the public resulting in their almost entire and total collapse. Although they certainly shaped Wrongtown and the country, that's the history, their history. I think it's fair to say it's all of our history as former children. True, and workers. Yeah, you said it. And yeah, yeah, current workers. Child labor, it's it's catchy. It's got a ring to it. It's too bad that it got spoiled. I guess they can just take any term and they can just make it mean anything these days. Yeah, that might have also been part of the downfall is the confusing name. Like, are they for child labor? Are they against child labor? Who's to say? Well, I'm here to say we are against child labor, but for the child-labor party in its most ideal form. Yeah, in the original. Not in any of the bad forms. Critical support for the middle forms. This has been Wrongtown History. See you next time, everybody, for more history about the place Wrongtown and the politics and events, past events of Wrongtown. Thank you. But speaking of children under capitalism and kids being spoiled, I want to make sure to mention children having desires for products that they see on television or they hear about from other kids in their class. Kids making that sort of demand isn't because they've got some sort of deep spoiledness inside them that they expect everything to be given to them. It's actually that in the advertising industry, they specifically design ads for the purposes of getting children to bother their parents about it. They called it the nag factor. But in the advertising industry, they understand that in order to sell products to children, you need to access their parents because children don't have wages. They don't have spending money. So they set up the ads to even sometimes in ads, there'll be stuff like the kid will be begging the parents in the ad and then the parents give in. And like, that's the ad (laughs) putting this idea in kids head, like scripting it out for them. They're like, Oh, you're asking about this again. He's like, yeah, I've asked so many times. Like, Oh, you asked enough times. Okay. I'll buy it for you. And they're like, hooray. And then it's like, Melmans, if you ask your parents enough times, they'll get it for you.
That's the way they strategize it. So it's just another example of the interconnections between consumerism, children, anti-child sentiment, this idea of the hostile child. We project this hostile idea of the kid based on them being influenced directly by things that they see on television that were designed by adults to try to attempt them to get this behavior from you. Uh, and then you blame the kid for it and say that the kid is spoiled and they're doing this because you're too nice to them. Yeah, we tend to understand children as being uniquely hostile rather than the reality of them being uniquely vulnerable, right? Like the reason that this advertising strategy works on children is because they're vulnerable to all of these psychological tricks that advertisers are familiar with and aware of. And adults have some capacity to become aware of and to avoid, but children like just don't have those tools built up and so that they are more susceptible to advertising tricks than a lot of adults would be. And that's not their fault. It doesn't make them bad. It just means that they are more in need of like help and guidance and opportunities to learn, not that they are spoiled or rotten or bad. Yeah, that vulnerability thing kind of goes across all of the reasons we call children spoiled for. Like we were talking about tantrums and meltdowns earlier, or just talking about children misbehaving, or it basically all comes from children having greater vulnerability, needing someone to provide food and everything for them, and more emotionally raw and vulnerable. I think in general, society has a disgust for vulnerability, and it is crystallized in children. And that's also why we compare people to children when they're being vulnerable a lot of the time, like, oh, you're being a crybaby. Crybaby is a, such a funny word. Like you're just putting the, the noun and the verb together and then using it as an insult. Do we do that in other contexts? Like, uh, like you're being a sneaky man. <laughs> you're being sneaky like a man. You're a sneakman. And we never do like positive ones. Like kids laugh a lot. Kids play. You're being such a play baby right now in like a positive way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're so playful. <laughs> or a laugh baby. You're just like you're like, you're so mirthful tonight. I love it. You're Total like giggle, a baby. Laugh ba giggle baby. <laughs> That's a positive term for an adult who is very mirthful. Or if someone's learning something really well and really fast, you could be like, you're a learn baby. Because babies actually, objectively speaking, no matter how hostile to babies you want to be, you got to hand it to them. They learn a lot of shit relatively fast. Like they learn really basic stuff that we take for granted, like what it's like to be inside versus outside, how to interpret light. <laughs> Language development in toddlers just blows my mind constantly. Anytime I hear a toddler talk, or if you spend a long time around the same toddler and you meet them when they're like two years old and they're you know saying single words maybe very simple sentences like within six months they're like talking at you in full sentences like where where the hell did that come from it's mind-boggling it's it's amazing <laughs> yeah so to be a learn baby is the highest compliment possible when it comes to learning because you're just learning such an unbelievable amount of stuff so quickly. It's as competent at learning as a baby is, which is to say extremely competent, the most competent thing we know of in the universe when it comes to learning. <laughs> That's true of newborn babies. Yeah, I like it. Babies in the first years of their life, the most competent thing in the universe when it comes to learning. I wish I could be a learn baby. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by Poisonous Pedagogy. Children are sneaky and they must be tricked. You said it. I knew right from the moment I had my kid, 
looked into their eyes and I said, that's honestly pure evil and needs to be tamed. Sometimes you get an evil one. You know, the older I get, the more I think they're all evil ones. Have you ever seen children in public crying and begging for their parents' attention and asking for toys and food and candy. That's pathetic. Kids these days are just too spoiled, and they'll use every trick in the book to try and convince their parents to abide by their every whim. So true. And they'll, they'll be using these tricks like, oh, I'm vulnerable. I'm uniquely vulnerable. Oh, I need help i need to understand oh look at me i'm so cute when they start bringing out that cute shit oh that's so transparent that's when you know they're really getting deeply evil and trying to trick you into giving them what they want you got to remember this is a zero sum kind of relationship it's you versus them red team versus blue team and the winner's got to be the parents Yeah, sometimes the evil comes to the surface and they look like horrible little monsters, but sometimes they're more like suave little psychopaths trying to be cute and play on your heartstrings. And it's important to note that no matter what face they're currently wearing, they're always evil, unless you raise them right and they grow up and get a job. Once they get a job, then maybe the evil goes down, maybe, if you're lucky. And if you don't constantly remind them of your rightful place as the authority of the household, they will always be trying to take that from you, try and make themselves in charge, try and control you. They just want to control the household when obviously the parents should be in charge. Yeah, these tiny tyrants want nothing more than to command and control the people around them at all costs. And so you need to command and control them to prevent this from happening. Poisonous pedagogy because children are secretly evil and you're in a zero-sum relationship to tame them. Proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. Yeah, so I guess capitalism shapes children to ready them for the marketplace, to turn them into workers and consumers. And there's this sort of force in the background of our life, which is through the common sense of society and the material relationships of society that slowly over time helps push children in the direction of what subject for that system should be according to the system. It's probably the case that it would be that way under alternative economic systems as well, except it would be towards whatever the ends of those other societies would be. Yeah, in a a very basic way, raising children is how society is reproduced, right? Quite literally, we're producing the next generation that will continue to make up society. And so that's reproducing class relationships by attempting to mold children into ideal workers. It's reproducing all these other intersecting hierarchies that we've discussed as children learn their place within these hierarchies and learn that it is in their best interest to dominate where they can, right? To always strive for the highest rung in the hierarchy. It's where they learn about the concept of hierarchy, that that's even how they're supposed to engage and interact with the rest of the world. And I think it is true that in any society that is going to be the case, not the hierarchy part, but just, you know, the reproducing of of social norms, the reproducing of social relations is is going to happen during childhood. It's, It's when we're introduced to the world, the social world, where we learn our place within it and what is allowed of us. And so societal change, like a positive anti hierarchical societal change, a big frontier for pushing for is through changing the way that we 
raise and interact with children, taking guidance from children when they when they question social norms and social arrangements. Well, this has been a really fun, interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us, Franz. It was a pleasure to talk about this stuff with you today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I also very much enjoyed the conversation. Always love talking about children and chatting with y'all wrong boys about whatever interesting stuff. We love having you on. Also, thank you, Aaron, for your contributions. Even though you're not the special guest, you are a <laughs> co-host. And I think that is just as important in many ways. And I say that with no offense to Franz. Well, thank you for thanking me. <laughs> I don't I'm not always co-host get, in the sense that I'm the host ranked. and you're the co-host. Co-host in that it's a shared, it's just the same title. Sometimes co-host is like vice host, right. but other times it's like two hosts. Two co-hosts together. Two co-hosts, yeah. I guess I could just, we could just say host. Yeah, it could be either one. Well, I thank you as well. I don't want you to be the only unthanked person here. That would be... Sometimes thanking people is a thankless job. Well... I did thank both of you, so please don't forget. And you never thanked me for thanking you, so I'm feeling a little left out now. Not to devalue the thanking (laughs) of the guest, either. I think a lot of hosts, they don't even notice when the guest thanks them. Yeah. that's a big problem. It's just expected. It almost feels like they're thanking the podcast and not me personally. Like, I don't take that in the same way as it when Sean said, Aaron, thank you. I was just like, oh, yeah, thanks to Seriously Wrong and the Wrong Boys, which, like, I identify with, but it's not quite as immediate. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear what you're saying, too, in that it's like thanking the institution. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> it's a social fiction that we inhabit, but it's not the same. But Franz did specify the Wrong Boys, which is a pseudonym for us yeah but it's still like a royal it's like thank you to all my children for cleaning up today versus thank you single specific person's name i don't know i don't mean to get defensive about it but i <laughs> yeah the word wrong boys does exist on legal paperwork we could <laughs> think of it as thanking sort of the legal partnership right true okay well to clarify any confusion Thank you, Sean, and oh, thank you, no, Aaron, no, no. Oh. for having this conversation with me. You're making us blush. <laughs> I, I appreciate the the childlike qualities that both of you brought to this conversation of, you know, curiosity and insightfulness and, you know, playfulness even. So, you know, thank you. Oh, thank you for, even though you didn't need to, re-thanking us. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, that it felt more specific. I felt like all three of us were total learn babies this whole time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And play babies, laugh babies too, giggle babies at times. I won't say this was an all baby all the time podcast. I think we also had elements of being adults, but <laughs> <laughs> I felt like we all embodied some of those positive qualities here today. Yeah. And I think we hit a lot of points that are interesting for adults to reflect on. There's also a lot of points we hit that would be good for babies to reflect on. So I know a lot of parents use something like a white noise machine, or I don't know the details on whether or not you should do that, but I do know the details on that you should play this episode in the crib with your newborn, get them started right. And the same way that it's always good to have a cup of coffee in the morning, it's always good to listen to this episode of Seriously Wrong in the morning of your life when you are a baby. And just so this is an equal exchange and we're not being unnecessarily condescending towards children, if you have a baby that you think would be interested in appearing on an episode of Seriously Wrong, not to offer this for you guys, I know I can't make this decision, but I think um, it would only be fair to have an episode where you have a baby as a guest. 
Yeah, I'd say we're accepting applications from baby guests. And no toddlers. We want a baby. Yeah, and (laughs) ideally we'd like to see some sort of evidence that they compose the message themselves. Yeah, yeah, no puppets. Yeah, baby puppets for adults. That's what we're trying to stand up against. Well, you know, if we can't get a baby on, then we'll have you back. Are you serious? I just 